0: If you have your Bibles this morning, let me encourage you to find Hebrews chapter number 8. Hebrews chapter number 8. And while you're finding your place there in Hebrews uh, chapter 8, uh, do it. I don't know if you heard the story about the uh, baseball coach. He coached little league baseball. And uh, his, the boy that he had up batten struck out. And the umpire missed a call. I mean, it was really, it was bad. And and, and so the coach called the little boy over and said, Son, you, you, you know, this is a this is a team sport. You understand that, right? And the little boy said, Yes, sir, I understand that. He said, y- You know, when you're working together as a team, it, it's not all just on one person. It, I mean, it's on the whole team. Do you understand that? He said, Yes, sir, I, I understand what you're saying. He said, Do you also understand that you can't you can't just argue with the umpire you you can't raise your voice you you can't call the umpire bad names you can't pick up rocks and throw them at the umpire you can't kick dirt at the umpire you can't threaten the umpire do you understand what i'm saying son He says, yes, sir, I understand. He said, good. Will you go over there and tell your mama the same thing? (laughs) (laughs) Hebrews chapter number 8, beginning in verse number 1. God is trying to tell us something very important. And what he's trying to tell us is that the old covenant is passed away. The old covenant is over. And the new covenant is now in effect. As a matter of fact, he's going to use at the closing of this verse that the old covenant is vanished away; it is vanishing away. That is, it's disappearing, out into the sunset. I want you to notice here, in particular, in Romans, excuse me, in Hebrews, chapter number eight, beginning in verse number one, how this flows all the way down through verse number thirteen. If you found your place and you're able to stand, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's word? Notice what the Bible says now. <clears throat> Of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained, offers offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if it were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou makest all things according to the pattern, showeth to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in, the, in their hearts, and I will be unto them a God, and they shall be to me a people." and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest for i will be merciful to the unrighteousness or to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will i remember no more in that he saith a new covenant he hath made the first old now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. You may be seated. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. The writer of Hebrews has laid out many examples as to why Jesus is more excellent than the prophets, why he's more excellent than the angels, why he's more excellent than Aaron, why he's more excellent than the old Levitical order. And when you look at it and you take just a step back and you see the overarching flow of this particular passage of scripture, you'll notice that in Hebrews, he just builds block upon block, piece upon piece, as he's explaining why Jesus is better than Judaism. Jesus is the way, he's the truth, he's the life, and communicating this to these to these Christian Jews was vitally important because they wanted to walk away from Jesus. They wanted to walk back into Judaism. They were discouraged, they were frustrated. They were being persecuted. They were having a hard time. Dear friend, we live in a culture today where we too have hard times. We live in a culture today where we have difficulties. We have trials. We still have death. We have discouragement. We have all these things that come into play. And if our faith isn't strong, there's a tendency for us to want to walk away and go back into our old lifestyle. As a matter of fact, one of the saddest things as pastor is watching someone do just that. To see someone receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord and to come and to come forward and make a profession of their faith and being baptized and saying, Yes, I, I know Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, and I've asked him to forgive me of my sins. And, and they get saved, but they never assimilate. They never appropriate themselves into a position to continue in their spiritual growth. That's one of the reasons why I wrote that little seven-day new minister or new believer's manual to try to help uh, the new converts that come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord to get a good week underneath their belt because I'm telling you, the devil hates you. He hates you. He hates that you come to church. He hates what you stand for. He hates your family. He hates everything about you. And his job is to cast doubt in your minds. And not a one of us in this place today is inoculated from that. We are to take every thought captive according to the Word of God. And in taking every thought captive, we are to put the devil in his place. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. You have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And the devil has no power over you. Neither does sin. Because of the witness of the Holy Spirit of God we have within us, when we got saved, God deposited the Holy Spirit inside of us, and that deposit is living. That living deposit of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us is what pokes at us when we sin. We call it goading. The Spirit of God goads us when we sin. That's why we can't be comfortable in our sin. And the writer of Hebrews understanding this said, listen, you can't go back to Judaism. You can't go back to your old way of life because it's not going to bring joy. It's not going to bring happiness. It's not going to bring the things you think it's going to bring. It's going to bring sadness. It's going to bring confusion. It's going to bring legalism. And my friend, I'm here to tell you today, that's the same thing that your old sins will draw you back into. Draw you back into those areas. So decide now, commit now to stick with the stuff. Stick with the Word of God. Let let God's Word be true and every man a liar. And so chapter 8 here in this focuses on this new covenant that Jesus ushered in through the resurrection of the dead. And as the Levitical system had come to an end it was important that these Jewish believers clearly understood that the blood sacrifice had never diminished the blood sacrifice was still vitally important to their salvation but it was not the blood of an animal it was the blood of Jesus it's the blood of Jesus that makes the difference also in regard to the priesthood He was not saying that the priesthood was not important. No, he was saying the priesthood is important, but the priest by which we have now is far greater than the priest that ever existed through the Levitical system. It's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And remember, Melchizedek was a king priest. But there's one thing that Jesus was. He was a prophet, priest, and king. So being after the order of Melchizedek, I was talking with a member about this just a few minutes ago that after the order of Melchizedek, this was Melchizedek's order was a picture of Jesus in his kingly aspect and in his priestly aspect, but not in his prophet aspect. There's only one that's been a prophet, a priest and a king, and that's Jesus. And so he says, Jesus is greater than the old covenant because he is the prophet, he is the priest, and he is the king. And he's calling their attention back to that Abrahamic covenant that was given to Abraham. Now, all through the Old Testament, you can find many covenants that God made with man. There is the uh, Adam covenant. He made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Moses. He made a covenant with Abraham. Probably the Abrahamic covenant... Genesis chapter 12 is one of the most popular because it promised the children of Israel a land, a seed, and a blessing. And that blessing is where you and I come in. The blessing is not just for them, but we as Gentiles are engrafted in as we believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And all the promises that are offered uh, to Israel have now been placed upon the children of God. To God be the glory, thank God, we have the promise of heaven and not just us, but the whole world. And so we find here in this particular chapter, the writer of Hebrews points to two specifics about the new covenant that must be understood if we're going to grow in our faith. So I hope today we'll grow in our faith As we understand these two specifics. Now, mindful, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 13, there's more stuff here than I can preach. But I want to give you the two things the Lord's placed on my heart to look at. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice is the person of the new covenant. The person of the new covenant. This is found in verses 1 through 6. In these first six verses, the writer of Hebrews highlights two aspects of Christ's current ministry. And he's pointing to the fact that his new covenant is superior to the old. What are these uh, two aspects of his ministry? Number one, the first thing I want you to notice is Jesus Christ's position. His position. Notice what the Bible says in verse number one. He says, now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum Now, I encourage you to write in your Bibles because it's so vitally important to have a clear understanding of the context and what's taking place here, and words are important. And this word in particular is of vital importance. It's the word sum. You see it there, S-U-M? The word sum in the King James has been debated over many, many generations, and here's the reason why. Some say that this word sum means summary. That's not an accurate portrayal of this word sum. Let's think about it like this. How many of you remember when you were in uh, grammar school and you started to learn how to add? They said 1 plus 1 equals 2. 2 is the sum of 1 plus 1, correct? Was that saying that 2 was the summary of 1 plus 1? No. No. It was saying that the absolute truth of the matter, the wholeity of the matter, the absolute point of this is that if you take one and you add one, you get two. Some, the sum is the totality of the matter, not just a summary, but exactly what he's saying. It is the truth. And so he's saying here, now, concerning the things that I wrote about, remember what he wrote about? He wrote about how Jesus Christ is more excellent than the prophets. He's more excellent than the angels, he's more excellent than Moses. He's He's more excellent than Aaron. He's more excellent than the old Levitical order. He says the sum of all of this, the total truth of all of this, is that Jesus Christ is the only high priest that we ever need. Notice what he says in the text there. He says this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. I would underline that word set because that's the second most important word here in this verse. The word set is recalling those Jewish minds to the Levitical system. And in thinking about the Levitical system, they had to remember that there was no place for that high priest to sit. There was no place for the priest to sit, period. There was no chairs that he could sit in. His work was never done. He had to minister daily, working daily. As a matter of fact, we find that uh, he talks a little bit more about this in chapter 10, verse number 11. Look at what the scripture says there. Just turn over a page if you can. And look in chapter 10, verse 11. He says there in the text, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. Man, you talk about a... Uh, just doing something to be doing it. I mean, he absolutely, he says, look, it doesn't even take away sins. They're standing in their midst. They can't even sit down. It is a work that is done over and over and over and over and over and over again on a daily basis, and there is nothing. There's no rest in it. It's always taking place. He says, but Jesus sat down. Jesus took a seat. As a matter of fact, when I read this passage of scripture, I can't help but get tickled because I get he, he, this is not the first time he said this, Abe. He has said this before. As a matter of fact, he said it in chapter one, and he couldn't even get out of the—he couldn't even get out of the first third verse before he said it. I mean, remember, there's no greeting. There's no, hi, how you doing? God bless, grace, love, peace, joy to you, and we're thankful that you're all born again. No, that's not how this one starts. Remember, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who in sundry times and diverse manners spoke in times past unto the Father by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, Jesus Christ whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds. And then verse 3, this is where he just gets sideways. He says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He gets excited about it, Charles. I mean, he can't help himself. He had to mention it just, I mean, we're only in verse number 3 and he's already talking about the greatness and majesty of his position. So why is this important? I'll tell you why this is important. The culture in which we live in today is trying everything that they can to add to the grace of God. You think about it. I wrote down several religions today and thinking about these religions that exist today, it's very evident that we as human beings, we want to do something in order to get to heaven. And the point that's being made to these Jews is you can't do anything, PJ. Jesus has already done it all. You can't do anything, but that's not how religion works today. You think about it. I thought about Buddhism. What about Buddhism? Buddhism teaches in reincarnation. And the better life you live every time you're reincarnated is one step closer to nirvana or what they consider heaven. It is a works-based salvation. Hinduism, much like Buddhism teaches reincarnation, but they have millions and millions of gods in order to please those gods, you've got to do better each time you're reincarnated. If not, you come back as a mouse or a rat. And then you try again and start over. It is a works-based salvation. Uh, Hindu, excuse me, Islam. Islam basically speaks of the five pillars of Islam. You've got to obey and do these five pillars. You've got to work to be a good Islamist. You also have to listen to the teachings of the Quran. And then you must also, if it comes available, die as a martyr. And in doing so, by doing those works, you can obtain heaven. Jehovah Witnesses. First of all, they only believe that 144,000 are going to be there. But in order to be included in that, you've got to do good works. You've got to do good things. Judaism. A whole book was written on this. The book of Hebrews Where the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you can't do anything to get to heaven. This old sacrificial system is over. The only sacrifice that you need to worry about is the sacrifice of Jesus. But that didn't stop us. Today, we also have Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism holds to the fact that it used to hold. It doesn't today. Roman Catholicism used to say the only way to go to heaven is you've got to be involved in that church. You've got to believe in and be a member of the Roman Catholic Church. And then they said, well, no, maybe that's not right. So in order to go to heaven, you've you, you got to go to classes, and then you got to go to rituals, and then you got to do some sacraments, and then you, you need to be baptized, and don't forget about last rites. You've got to do all these things in order to go to heaven. Dear friend, I love my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. But the fact of the matter is, if you don't come to Jesus by grace through Jesus Christ alone, you're coming the wrong way. The Bible says it's not of works. Roman Catholicism is a works-based salvation. How about this? Scientology. I don't know if you've noticed on the television today, but that seems to be something of a very hot topic where uh, individuals are coming out of Scientology. And as they're coming out of Scientology, you're seeing that what they're uh, imploring, what they're asking people to do is to purify themselves by good works purify yourselves through good works and finally you will be cleared once you're cleared if you would from all this operating sin within you then you will have this matter, this energy, this time that you will be uh, highlighted into their nirvana or their heaven. How about the religion of Shinto? In Shinto they believe that in order for you to go to heaven you've got to pay penance. You've got to do something. It's a works based salvation. Toism, works skintuism is works how about this unitarian universalism they believe it doesn't matter what you believe. If you want to be a Baptist, you can be a Baptist. If you want to be a Presbyterian, you be a Presbyterian. It doesn't matter. Universalist believes whatever it is you're dedicated to, you just do that with all your heart. God understands and you just do it. It's a works-based salvation. When he comes and he looks at you and he says, got the scales and he puts your good works on one side and your bad works on the other. If your good outweighs the bad, then you get to go to heaven. It's a works-based salvation. Listen to me very carefully, friend. We do not have to do the work. Christ did all the work. And the Bible says in this text, he says, we have such a high priest who is set on the majesty at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. He sat down. He's done. Hey. As far as the work of salvation is concerned, it is over. He will not be sacrificed again. Hey. You don't have to do anything else in order to be saved. Now, let me show you this. Not only does he talk about this issue of how he sat down, I want you to notice where he sat down. He says he sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. You see that there? That's an important phrase. It's vitally important that we understand what he's talking about here. You see, the writer of Hebrews says that not only did he sit sit down, but he sat down on the right hand. Now, we know that to be the hand of honor. If you go into other cultures and um, it's very important that when you shake someone's hand or you say hello to someone you don't use the left hand now it's not against South Paul people it's just the right hand was always a symbol of, of authority it was the symbol of honor it was a symbol of power uh, not to mention I learned in my worldly travels and going all over the world that the left hand was used uh, for personal things they used their left hand when they went to the restroom they would never use their right hand Why? Well, because of the sanitation conditions in many places of the world. This was the defiled hand. This was the hand of honor. And they would offer that hand of honor to shake or to say hi or to hug. And the left hand would always be down around their side or behind their back. It was a place of honor. But that's not the only thing. There's no doubt that when these Jews heard that Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand, they thought about the Sanhedrin. Who were the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin were 70 elders that made up the supreme court, so to speak, of Israel. Now regardless of Roman rule and Roman occupation, they always had a Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin would sit and they would function like a supreme court, but they could go further. They were the judge, the jury, and the executioner in regards to they covered it all. But anytime a judge came to town from the Sanhedrin, he would always take two, tri- two scribes with him. There was a scribe that would sit on his left and a scribe that would sit on his right. And when the guilty would come in front of the Sanhedrin, in front of that, in front of that judge, and, and that case would be pleaded, it was very important what the judge said because if the judge casted condemnation upon the individual, the scribe on the left would write it down. You see, the scribe on the left hand always wrote down the condemnation. If the judge heard and there was uh, grace and mercy that need to be extended and there was no condemnation to the individual, then the, the scribe on the right would write that down. He was in charge of all the acquittals. So you have the judge hearing, and those that were condemned were on the left, and those that were acquitted were on the right. So when Jesus said, or when the writer of Hebrews said, we have a high priest that is in the heavenlies, in the very throne room of God, and God's on the throne, he is not sitting on the left of God, he's sitting on the right of God, a place of not only honor, but a place of authority, and a place of mercy. Hey. He says he's sitting at the right hand of God. We see his position. But not only do we see his position, I also want to point out number two, his place. We see his place. What do you mean? Look at what the Bible says in verse number two. I don't have time to go all the way through verse six. I just want to deal with verse number two. I want you to notice his place uh, in regard to the person of the new covenant. It says he is a minister of the sanctuary. And of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Man, if I had my pen, I would underline that term, the sanctuary. Why? Because the sanctuary is the place that's been set apart for God. As a matter of fact, we call this the sanctuary. We don't call it the sanctuary much anymore, we call it the worship center. Uh, Terms and vernacular change over time, but a sanctuary or a worship center is a place that's been set aside for God. Here, it's exclusively for His use. It's exclusively for God. It's a place of reverence. It's a place of worship. It's different than the temple. It's different than the temple where the priest would minister to. Jesus does not minister in a temple of cedar, in a temple of gold, in a temple of cloth, in a temple of marble, in a temple of granite. He resides in the sanctuary. You see, Jesus is here with us today. We collectively as born-again children of God are the sanctuary of God. We're the worship center of God. What does the Scripture say? We're two or more gathered together. There's where Jesus is in the midst. What do you need to have church? Just somebody else, bless God. Just get with us and we can have a fellowship and the church is meeting. There are churches that are meeting in sanctuaries all across the land, and some without even any buildings. They're meeting in the sanctuary. We like to think that this is God's house. We'd like to think that the refuge is God's house or the gymnasium. These are God's houses. Really, the fact of the matter is, we're God's house. God doesn't have some room upstairs in which he's living in. No, he owns everything. He is everywhere. And because he owns everything and because he's everywhere, his place is everywhere. He is with us right here today. He is amongst us. He is in our midst as we are the sanctuary. He is a minister of the sanctuary, he says, and of the true tabernacle. I would underline that word, true tabernacle. This speaks of that which is real. It speaks of that which is real in contrast to that which is a copy. It's not saying that the the old was false. No, he's not saying that at all. God really was there. God resided in that. But he's saying that that was just a temporary place. That was just a copy. That was just a representative. The truth of the matter is that Jesus Christ resides in the true tabernacle, which is our hearts. When you study the Word of God, you'll find in the book of Acts, in the book of uh, John, in the verse of 2 Corinthians, and many, many other passages of Scripture, it refers to these bodies as temples. It refers to these bodies as tabernacles. It refers to these bodies as tents. And the Bible says one day we will lay these tents down. We'll lay these tabernacles down, referring to death. He says we'll lay them down. In one sense of the word, he's referring to his place being in our hearts. Jesus lives in our hearts, but he's also referring to a second place, and that is our heavenly home, a temple not made with hands. The Bible says, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you, that where I am, there you may be also. Oh, dear friend, listen to me very carefully. This world is not our home. This building right here is not the temple or the tabernacle of God. We are the tabernacle of God. We are the temple of God. We're the true tabernacle, and Jesus resides inside of our hearts. This is the place of Jesus. This is the position of Jesus. This is the person, Jesus. But not only do you see the person of the new covenant, let me show you a second thing very quickly as we close. Let me show you the promises of the new covenant. The promises of the new covenant. In verses 7 through 13, in this section, the writer points out the promises of the new new covenant. Notice them with me this morning. There are three in particular that if we get a hold of could really, really change our life forever. Number one, the first promise he wants to talk about is that of an internal commandments internal commandment what do you t- look at verse number 10 notice what the Bible says the scripture says for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days saith the Lord I will put my laws into their minds into their mind and write them in their hearts I will be to them of God and they shall be to me a people what's he referring to here he's referring to an internal commandment The first covenant, if you would, that was given, uh, consisted of those commandments that were written upon stone tablets. You remember that? But this new covenant is an external covenant. That was an external covenant, but this new covenant is an internal covenant. Having the laws that speak directly inside our heart. Man, I don't know if you remember this or not, but do you remember before you got saved? Man, I remember. Gosh, I remember before I got saved. I... I had a problem with my mouth. I can remember being at Gaston one year. This was a public uh, school that I was attending. And and uh, I can remember standing in the lunch line, and uh, some kid kicked me in the shin. I didn't take that too well. and So, man, I cussed them up a streak up one side and down the other. I mean, I just absolutely cut them with every word I could possibly think of. So much so that about 10 people in front of me, while I was letting this individual had, have it turned to me with their eyes raised real high and say, don't you feel guilty about talking like that? Well, I didn't like what they said, so I gave them a piece of my mind too. Needless to say, nobody else talked to me the rest of the day. I didn't feel guilty. didn't bother me at all. Regardless of how I was not supposed to say those things. But then on March 22nd, 1988, I gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ. And on that day, my life changed forever. I can remember I got upset about something and I let a cuss word slip after I got saved. I felt so much guilt inside of me. I went to my Sunday school teacher. I said, what in the world is going on? I used to could do that and I didn't care anything about it. Now I feel such guilt. So well, that's easy. That's the Holy Spirit that's inside of you. You see, when you got saved, God gave you the Holy Spirit and made that deposit in your life. And now that Holy Spirit pokes you, prods you, goads you when you sin. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if you'll confess that sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Or you can ignore that, shame, and that thing will become calloused. It'll become hard. And you, you'll do those things that you used to do, and it won't bother you. Listen to me, Christian friend. If you know that you're born again, you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior, yet you can do the things that you used to do before you got saved, and it doesn't bother you, there's either one of two things that have happened. Number one, you're not truly saved. Or number two, you're calloused. You're calloused. And man, I'll tell you, the only thing to deal with a calloused heart is Jesus Christ. Is recognizing that that's a sin... And coming to Jesus Christ and getting that right with Him. He says here in this particular section, He says, look, I'm going to write that my laws in their minds and in their hearts. This also speaks of worship. It speaks of true worship. The new covenant is true worship. And this true worship is internal. It's not external. Now that doesn't mean that we should not raise our hands and shout hallelujah. No, listen, I think if we're going to get excited at football games, we need to get excited for Jesus. And so he's dealing with this internal commandment. I read a story this week about what's happening in Islam over in the Middle East. Did you know that in the Middle East, we've been in conflict with Islam for 1,400 years? 1,400 years, we've been in extreme conflict. Christianity and Islam have been rubbing up against each other. But here in these latter days... God has been doing some amazing things in Israel, over in the Middle East. Southern Baptists have partnered with a man by the name of David Garrison who wrote a book entitled A Wind in the House of Islam. And he says that there is a tremendous movement happening over in the Middle East. They've questioned him about well, what is this movement you're talking about? What consists of a movement? And he says anytime you have in, in the, the Middle East, if there's a section of community where they have a hundred people come to know Jesus Christ and are baptized, and a church begins to pop up on more than one occasion. He said, that's what we are calling a movement. But he says, it's not just one church. In order for us to call it a movement, there has to be at least 100 people saved and baptized, and there must be 1,000 churches that are starting. What he's saying, Charles, is in the Middle East today, where the Bible is forbidden, where Christianity cannot exist... There is a movement happening in little pockets, in little towns where hundreds of people are being saved and being baptized. And they're starting underground churches by the thousands for the glory of God. How is this happening in a place that doesn't have a Bible? How is this happening? Dear friend, listen to me. They say that this, this writer says one thing is the common denominator in God moving in such a mighty way. Doubting that Islam is the truth. When they doubt that Islam is the truth, they begin to seek what true truth is. The Bible says that Jesus dwells in the true tabernacle. That true tabernacle is me and you. He calls into the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes said it best when it said, you've got inside of you eternity. You know that eternity exists. God's put eternity in your heart, and you long to go after that eternity. Yet when that eternity is contradictory with the truth, you reject that false religion of Islam, and you turn to the truth. And the truth is, Jesus is the only way. And it's happening. It's happening in the Middle East, and it's absolutely incredible. Watch this. Not only does he talk about this internal commandment, but he also talks about this individual calling. There's an individual calling. Look at verse number 11. Man, I wish I could camp out here, but look at what he says in verse 11. He says, and look in the latter part, for all, I would underline that word all, all shall know me from the least to the greatest. He's speaking here of an individual calling upon this wonderful group. This is actually a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31 in verse 34. And yes, it refers to a future day that's coming where Judah will be reunited. But the truth of the matter in this passage of Scripture is simply this. Jesus wants everyone to be saved. Even those in the Middle East, he wants them to be saved. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 and 4 says this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of truth. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises as men count slackness, but is longsuffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm telling you there's a fresh wind that's happening out there in the Middle East because The Spirit of God is moving across that land, and people are giving their heart to Jesus Christ. And it's an individual calling. Let me tell you about what happened in Lebanon. In Lebanon, there was this sweet couple, and this sweet couple were dedicated to Islam. And they got pregnant, and she was six months pregnant with her baby. She laid down to rest one night, and as she is resting, she is doubting that Islam is true. She says, it can't be true. There's so much war. Jihad's not right. They'll never become peace like that. And so we, as she began to contemplate that and doubt that, she went to sleep one night. And did you know she had a dream? And that dream that she had was Jesus. And she said Jesus came to her in a dream and said, I'm Jesus. You're going to have a little girl. I want to tell you that I'm the only way to get to heaven. I'm the way, the truth, and the light. You will not find the peace you're looking for unless you come to me. And then we find that the woman got up the next morning scared to death to tell her husband. Because to tell her husband was to deny Islam. And to deny Islam is just like burning the Kaaba. You know what that is? That's that thing out there in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia. It's like a box and they walk around and around and around and around. When you accept Jesus Christ and you deny Allah and Islam, it's like you've burned that place to the ground. That is worthy of death. She's terrified. She doesn't want to tell her husband about the dream she had about Esau, Jesus. He goes to bed a couple of nights later. He wakes up in a cold sweat. He wakes up and thinking, my stars, I just had an amazing dream. You know what the dream was? Esau came to him in a dream and said, my name is Jesus Christ. I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I died for your sins. And the only peace you'll ever find is through me. Doubting that Islam could ever bring peace he had a dream the Bible says in the latter days. there are going to be dreams There's going to be visions. I'm telling you church listen to me It's happening in the Middle East people are coming to know Jesus Christ There's no explanation other than there's a fresh wind that's happening in the Middle East and they're coming to Christ and listen They're coming without even Bibles. They're trusting Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. He's the way He's the truth. He's the life. No man will come to the Father, but by Jesus He talks about an individual calling. Dear friend, I promise you today, if you get saved today, it's because Jesus is calling you individually. And then number three, here's the last thing, and I close. We see an immediate cleansing. An immediate cleansing. This is found in verse 12 and verse 13. Under this new covenant, this cleansing, this pardon that we experience, comes through the blood of Jesus, but comes to us through the mercy of God. Look at what the Scripture says in verse 12. He says, For I will be merciful to them, or to their unrighteousness. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. The writer of Hebrews simply says this, That salvation that you're experiencing came at the expense of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that blood was extended to you through the mercy of God. To remember your unrighteousness no more. No more. To choose not to hold that against you. You say, well, does that mean that if Jesus... uh, uh, doesn't remember does that mean that he forgets no that's not what that word means at all it means to not hold it against you to not hold it against you here's the one thing that you cannot escape as a human being you cannot escape memory we can say all day long i forgive you but i'll never forget what you did to me that's a true statement you'll never forget But here's the thing. Will you choose not to hold it against that person? That's where grace is. That's where mercy is. That's where Jesus is. Jesus says to remember our sins no more. That is to say, to not hold our sins against us anymore. Jesus at the right hand of God. Watch this. Jesus at the right hand of God when Shane got saved on March 22, 1988, on the acquittal side of the judgment seat, took the Lamb's Book of Life and wrote Shane Robertson Acquitted. Washed in the blood. I want to ask you a question, dear friend. On that day I got saved, it came internally. It came individually, and it came immediately. Can I ask you this question? What about you? Have you ever experienced anything like that? Have you ever experienced a move of God on your life where He personally called you, individually called you, and immediately wanted you to come to Him? He might be dealing with you right now today. Did you know the Bible says today's the day of salvation? Today's the day which you can be saved. So, how could I do that, Pastor? The Bible's clear. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Today you can be saved if you'd give your heart to Christ. Let's bow for prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today. And maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. The Bible says in Luke chapter 6, verse 36, Be ye therefore merciful, as your Father is also merciful. Dear friend, He's merciful to us. He's extending mercy to you today. And He wants you to come to Him. The invitation this morning is twofold. First of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, why not not today? Just get saved today right where you're sitting, would you say this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Messiah. And this morning I ask you to save me. I repent of my sin, and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'm not ashamed of you. In Jesus' name.